0: This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our class on contracts for hearing officers and mediators. That is going to be led by Judge Gerald Williams. Uh, We thank Judge Williams greatly for uh, um, for doing this session. Uh, Just a reminder, uh, we are recording this session Uh, and it will be posted to YouTube and as an audio podcast. Uh, We do have at least one person on the phone. If if you're going to be making noise, please mute yourself, or I will mute you, and then you wouldn't be allowed to – you couldn't ask a question. Uh, uh, The materials were emailed, and they'll be located on Hytale. Uh, The the project certificate will be uh, at the end of the materials, and uh just a reminder if you're going to leave your camera on please make sure that you're you are attentive and paying attention uh, or you can go ahead and turn your camera off and just turn it on when you have a question Uh, and with that being said judge williams uh many of you are familiar with judge williams we do have his bio attached uh he is just a terrific presenter this looks an awful lot like the session that you do present at New Judge Orientation on contracts. Is that correct, Judge Williams?
1: Yes, it's, uh, it's tailored more to, to some specific things, because I can um, uh, tailor it a little better. Um, I, I want, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about debt buyer cases, for instance, because you, you probably won't see too many of those as a hearing officer but you might see other types of, of, of cases. And I wanted to, to focus on real world things. And I also wanna give people the opportunity to uh, interrupt me, ask questions, um, share you know their experiences. And to the extent that this can be uh, a discussion as opposed to just listening to me for talk for a couple hours and using this to replay later if you can. Fall asleep some evening, um, then uh, that would be better in, in my opinion. I'd rather have a of a, a discussion than just uh, me listening to myself because we, we lose a little bit anyway by doing it in a in a remote format. Um, when we talk about contracts, um, well, oh, and products, and I
0: was going to say, and and, and and thank you. We do welcome the questions. And we also do have a chat box too, and so if you want to put a question or comment in the chat box, I'll be monitoring that. Thank you. I right, take it away. George. All right.
1: Well, all, all promises are likely morally enforceable, but all promises aren't always legally enforceable, and that's and that's where um, a lot of things come up in, in a small claims setting, um, sometimes in a mediation setting as well. Um, if you if you promise to meet someone for brunch and you fail to do so, there's going to be probably some kind of social stigma associated with that. Maybe that friendship is going to be fractured, but you're unlikely to be a defendant in a lawsuit because you didn't meet someone for brunch like you promised to. Um, But in the business setting, everything is very, very different. Um, Our entire economic system is based on the belief That contractual obligations will be enforced uh your goods for my money my services for your money these types of of voluntary uh transactions create value and it's quite frankly what keeps part of our society going uh in terms of a contract formation, it's it's generally fairly simple it requires an offer an acceptance of that offer and something called consideration in law school uh we spend an enormous amount of time talking about consideration it's generally uh defined as a bargain for detriment as long as um one side receives something um from the other and it, it's mutual then that's that's generally considered uh, consideration um in Arizona they make it a little simpler and if the contract is in writing the consideration's presumed oh, you probably won't have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out if there's adequate consideration or not. Sometimes in, in contracts, you'll see the phrase for $1 and other valuable consideration or something like that. And that's just to sort of check that box. But an offer is just what you think an offer is, it, it's something that creates the power of acceptance in the receiving party. Um an offer is a proposal to enter into a contract on the term stated in the offer. If the person comes back with something that's different than the offer, then that's a counter offer and it's a new it's a new offer and acceptance thing. But the the acceptance has to be identical to the offer. Otherwise it's you don't have a contract. So you if you have an offer and then a the counter offer and then uh one side follows a lawsuit saying you you breach the contract you don't actually have a contract you have a you have an offer and a counteroffer oh, isn't it what okay there are some types of contracts um, that are so important that they have to be in writing and that's called the statute of fraud the concept that goes back from William the Conqueror. Um, and it's it's at the bottom uh, of the first page there, if we could scroll down a little bit. Here we go. Um, someone who came up with things for law students to memorize thought my legs was an easy way to remember the all of the things in the statute of frauds I don't memorize things that way. I've memorized things based on the first word of something or first letter of something. But if you want to use my links to remember this, great. But most of these are are not going to uh, necessarily come up, but I just wanted you to be familiar with them. A contract in consideration of a marriage, I have never seen one. If 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 any of you ever see a contract with a promise to marry in it, let me know. Let our public relations people know. Um, I, I've just never seen that it, it, they're just not really done in, in modern society. But if there is a contract uh, to marry somebody, it, it has to be in writing to be enforceable. Uh, contracts requiring more than a year to be performed have to be in writing to be enforceable. You'll see this, I can almost guarantee it. it'll be a loan between family members or a loan between neighbors or or former friends and the payment plan uh, will be verbal and it will extend beyond the year if if the defendant um, stops making payments that's not that's not a contract it's not an enforceable contract the person has a, a, a moral obligation to pay but they probably don't have a, a legal obligation to pay um, and you, you can see that in and verbal leases too that last for for more than a year. A contract for the sale of land. If you see one of these in justice court, you should bring it to the attention of of the justice of the peace. because they they're in the wrong court. Um, if, if there's anything uh, directly involved, if, if there's a real estate purchase contract and you're being asked to interpret it or enforce it, um, the the case is most likely in the wrong court, and that needs to be transferred to Superior Court. Um, same with an executor's uh, promise to pay a deceased debt. If you're getting into probate areas, that's not us. We don't do that. Um, those need to be filed in, in Superior Court. And a contract for the sale of goods, um, you will see, and there, there are lots of issues on that. So I, I, I want to talk about that a little bit. Arizona um, lays out the statute of frauds fairly easily. They're all in uh, Title 44-101, and it's just a list, um, and it has those common law things are actually by statute. But what I, I want to do is, is talk about the ones that you're most likely to see. Um, the suretyship promise, that's a promise to pay someone else's debt, um, and you, you'll get these unfortunately a lot usually between family members where someone is promising to pay on unexpected debt that's kind of an emergency by somebody else and then later on they decide not to do it so these that comes up in the context of unfortunately usually weddings and funerals Um, a family member will want to go to a wedding or to a funeral and uh, maybe it's a destination wedding they can't afford the airline and they're like, don't worry, just put it on your credit card, and uh, I'll pay it. I'll reimburse you for it. Later on, the cousin has a falling out with the, the person. and They're like, hey, you promised to pay this. And I'm like, that's, that's not me. Um, and even though there's a witness that says they promised to pay the debt and the, the contract is between the credit card company and the airline and the, the holder of the credit card. So that's a promise to pay somebody else's debt. It it may not be uh, enforceable if it's not in writing. Um, We already briefly hit on agreements that can't be done in a year. Leases that are for more than one year have to be in writing to be enforceable. And then the sale of goods valued at $500 or more with some exceptions have to be in writing to be enforceable. Um, All kinds of people sell, I mean, people sell cars on a on a handshake but uh filling out the form on the back of the title or transferring the title form that they give you at motor vehicles can, can count as as the writing for the written part of the contract but uh uh depending on on what else has happens in that particular case but if generally the sale of goods valued at 500 dollars or more if you're gonna if you're gonna do a contract for that, that needs to be in writing. There is an exception for specifically manufactured goods. So, if the if the goods are made specifically for a buyer and are not suitable for resale to anybody else, then um, an oral contract may be enforced. And the the example I use at at new judge orientation a, a lot on this is a uh, is a political sign. Um, if I say um, I do a sign. I want a, a green sign that says Judge Williams for Justice of the Peace, and I get a a purple sign, you know, that says Judge William for State House. Um, you know, they can't say, well, we got we got most of it right. You know, I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to reject that because that that that's not part of the contract. But if they if they produce the sign, that's the, the same way I I requested it. Um, nobody else well, there's generally nobody else named Judge Williams probably running for justice of the peace. Now oddly enough, in Maricopa County, we had two Judge Williamses um, that are both justices of the peace, and we joked that we can maybe you know coordinate our signage and just pass it back and forth uh, between our, our districts, but generally a, a, a political sign is going to be something that's specifically manufactured. It can't really be sold to anybody else. Um, so I'm a huge college sports fan. So I, I picked these logos from a, from a company that makes ironworks. Um, so say you go to this ironwork artist, announce that you're a huge college sports fan. You enter into a verbal contract for an ironwork. Pistol Pete, um, or you enter into a contract for I want a welcome Wildcat sign, or I want a OSU logo sign, or I want a a Bulldogs sign. Um, And you, you're expecting um, the Oklahoma State Pistol Pete there, which is the orange one. And instead, you get the University of Wyoming uh, Pistol Pete, there's actually been litigation over that. That logo, Wyoming now, their cowboy doesn't have a gun anymore. He has a Lariat now. Um, so there's that's that's how they resolved that. But you know, you go, well, wait a minute. I can't, you know, I, I I I wanted Oklahoma State's logo, or I wanted University of Arizona Wildcats, I didn't want Kansas State Wildcats, or I wanted Oklahoma State, I didn't want Ohio State, or I wanted you know the uh the georgia bulldog you know everyone knows when you say bulldog you mean georgia not you don't mean mississippi state um unless maybe you're you're an alum from mississippi state so i thought that that was kind of so you, you apply the analysis are, are the goods you know specifically made for a buyer yes they are but are they suitable for resell to others i would argue yes in every single case now you may have if you're in Arizona, you may have trouble finding a Kansas State Wildcat, you know, to, to sell that ironworks to, um, but I think all of those would be uh, subject to resale, in my opinion, anyway, if, if Ohio State has fans everywhere. So there should be, if if you ask for Oklahoma State and you get Ohio State, I, I, I think that um, you could, as the buyer, you could refuse that. Now, if you add to the ironworks a little bit, these are actually things that are made to, to put in your yard. And so, if you add your house number, so say you add 1530, um, that was the house number I grew up in. Um, if you add 1530, well, now you've got a specific, specifically manufactured good. It's not suitable, you know, for resale. Um, so you, you, the, the chances of you finding another you know, Arizona Wildcat fan with the house number 1530, that, that's, in my opinion, highly unlikely. Um, and I guess you could avoid the issue by supporting teams that have a very unique mascot, like the University of Oklahoma Sooners or the Arizona State Sun Devils there at the bottom. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there are no other Sun Devils. There are no other Sooners. But does does anyone have any thoughts on that? Apparently not. Charles wanted to know why I didn't put a Stanford logo Uh, up. The the simple reason is that particular company, uh, for whatever reason, doesn't manufacture things for Stanford. They have things for other parts of the Pac-12, but not Stanford, and maybe because they're supposed to be yard ornaments, a a side issue is no one in the Bay Area can afford a house with a yard. I I don't know. But that, that could be a separate deal. And if you, if you ever get a case with a, a good, quicker at an auction, um, then that's an exception to the, stat, the statute of frauds too. I like the show story towards, I don't know if anybody else likes it. I don't care that it's fake. I don't care that they put, you know, stuff in the lockers beforehand. Um, I still enjoy it. But none of those, none of those exchanges are, are written contracts. They're all people scratching their nose or yelling yup or, or whatever. Those are all going to be valid contracts. So if you get a, a good purchased at an auction, that's going to be a valid contract. I don't know that you're going to see very many of those cases because the auction uh, house won't let you leave with the goods usually until you pay for them. But if, if somehow you get out of the auction with the goods and without paying, then that that would be uh, a legitimate contract. Is there anything further on that? you will get cases um, where you have to figure out is was this a loan or was this a gift um and especially again unfortunately you get these most often between family members um where it's a someone in a, a typically a small claim setting or sometimes a regular justice court setting where uh people loan money to get a, a car out of a mechanic or uh, promise to pay a hospital bill or promise to pay someone's tuition to go to uh, some type of vocational training or whatever. And it comes back and they don't get reimbursed. Uh, the boyfriend and the girlfriend break up or, or something like that. And so you you come up, it, it was this a loan Um, Or was it a gift? And and the test is usually, was there some type of unconditional voluntary transfer of property? If so, it's it's most likely a gift, even if the other person is now saying, well, yeah, but I I wanted that back. Um, If it's something that was given in exchange uh, for something else, then that starts to look like a contract. So you just have to um, listen to the facts of the case, listen to the testimony, look at whatever evidence there is um, in documents or photographs or whatever and, and try to figure out is this a a loan or is this a, a gift, um, there's a chance um, at some point you'll have a, an engagement ring case where uh, uh, one person um, can give an engagement ring to the other and then they they break up and the the person who gave the ring either wants uh, the ring back or they want the money for the ring. Um, Arizona doesn't have any appellate case law on that issue. Some states do. Uh, Most states say an engagement ring is a gift. Um, Some say it's a conditional gift. And if you, you break up with the person, you should give it back. Um, I, there was one state—I um, want to say Kansas, but I don't know if that's right. There is one state that actually tried to look at the thing equitably, determine who whose fault it was that the relationship failed, like who, who who broke up with who, why did it not work out, and that person got to keep the ring. I think that's the the worst analysis you could go down. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't try to do that. Um, so I would, I would approach it as either it's a, yeah, I would approach an engagement ring as a, uh, as a gift. Does anyone have any, any thoughts on um, these cases where there, you have to decide if something is a loan or a gift? I, I know if you've been hearing cases, you, you've had them, um, does anyone have any, any, any examples they want to share or how did they resolve it or, or anything like that? I know it's Friday afternoon, but you're inside, so that's a good thing. So, if you're if you're outside, it would be 117. So, um, just be thankful that you're inside right now. Well, actually, if you're on the phone, I don't know where you are, but if you're in front of a computer, you're probably inside. Okay, we have a, a relatively quiet group, I guess, and that's okay. After you have established that there's a contract, um, you, you have an offer, you have an acceptance of that offer. Um, one side, if, if they're if they're in court, one side is claiming that the other side has not performed the the requirements of the contract, um, and that's called a breach of contract. That's what they that's what they're suing for. They may not call it that, but that's that's what it is. Um, When you interpret a contract the first thing to do is look at the words and assume the words mean what they say um and if the document appears to be plain and and clear unambiguous then its meaning has to be determined from what's called the four corners of the document which means what's what's actually on the page um without any what lawyers call extrinsic evidence Extrinsic evidence is this testimony as to what the the parties understood um, stated another way, the written contract is the final evidence of the agreement, and it generally can't be contradicted. Now, if something is is not clear, then you can hear a lot of testimony about, well, I know it says that, but that's what, here's what we meant by that. So if you have uh, a contract, where Someone wants to testify. Well, yeah, they—that's what they—that's what it says. But I didn't read it before I signed it, so that's not what I think it meant. What you think it meant may not be that helpful. It may not be that relevant. What the contract actually says is what's going to control. Um, does anyone have any any questions or, or anything to add on that?
0: judge we actually do have a oh uh, have a question Um, during the COVID shutdown there were a number of travel plans that were canceled or delayed by the carrier cruise line a number of cruise lines are issuing future travel vouchers that the original traveler doesn't want they want their money back especially if they're elderly what options do the travelers or plaintiffs have
1: on On airline tickets and on on cruise tickets and things like that, there's there's usually fine print that that governs that, and uh, unfortunately, it, it, nothing is going to help the consumer um, on those. I, I think that they they should be entitled to um, just get their money back. Um, the cruise line may not have money to give them, which is maybe why they're giving them future vouchers. There's uh, there's a defense to performing a contract. Um, if, if something happens as an, as an act of nature or something that's beyond both parties control, there's a, there's a Latin phrase for it. Um, the insurance companies sometimes call it an act of God. If, if there's something that happens beyond the control of both parties, both parties can be excused um, from strictly performing the contract. Um, I think that the people seeking a refund would have um, a good case. However, there may be something in the fine print of the contract that they signed um, that they weren't aware of. Um, Airlines are, are governed by something called the Warsaw Agreement, which has nothing to do with World War II or the Warsaw Pact countries, but uh, if if they're, they're suing for a refund in 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 your court and, and you're hearing the case, then you would be within your your rights to award the refund plus you know court costs or whatever, depending upon uh, what else is uh, what the terms of the contract say. I uh, if you're I would be surprised if someone sued, say, Carnival Cruise Lines in Small Claims Court, um and got proper service and someone from Carnival Cruise Line showed up. My guess is that if you sue Carnival Cruise Lines in Small Claims Court, they would transfer it to regular justice court and you would be dealing uh, with their attorney who may be willing to settle the case rather than litigate that and and potentially get bad publicity but the the goal of of contract damages and we'll talk about it in in a moment is to put people in the position they would have been had the contract been performed since that's impossible um to covid then you would put them in the position that would be prior to the contract which is a, a refund maybe the people don't don't want to uh you know for europe five years from now or something like that but that that's a very good question um are there any other questions or any other misstatements or stories people want to share judge williams this
2: this is warner or okay i was the one that asked uh specifically specifically i had some cases where there were a number of Sun City travelers and they were all elderly, old, and above. And they just wanted their money back. But the only option that the cruise line was giving was a future one, two, three years in the future. And they all kind of jokingly, seriously said, we don't know if we're going to be alive then. We just want our money back. So the only option that was given to them was that travel voucher.
1: Okay. So how did it, were the cases settled, or how did it come out, or or have you heard them yet? Um,
2: No. I heard that actually the travelers sued the travel agent booking party person. Oh. Um, what it, the real quick story was this third party acted just as a, uh, facilitator to book everything and the part, the versus suing carnival or whomever it was.
1: Yeah, well, well it, you're not technically supposed to give people legal advice, I guess, but if they've sued the wrong defendant, um. They sued the wrong defendant, and you can give them, you know, either the the state bar or the Maricopa County or, or whoever uh, phone number for a lawyer referral referral service. But it, it sounds like in that situation, the the travel agent did what they were supposed to do. And, and that that service. was <laughs> yes. So
2: and I, that I was exactly what I told told them that I believe you've got the wrong party as the defendant
1: yeah so i I get that they don't want to necessarily sue carnival cruise line or or whatever the other one disney or whoever else does still does cruise lines but um yeah i i would those cases would probably be a, a defense verdict um for a dismissal because it, it looks like, it, based on what you're telling me, they, they sued the wrong person. Does anyone else have any questions or, or stories that was that was useful? Okay. There is an exception to the, the idea that you have to strictly comply with the contract. Um, and that's called uh, substantial performance. Um, This is especially in in construction contracts. Um, Basically, if there's a a good faith attempt to comply with the contract's terms, then the the agreement's gonna be enforced um, if the essential purpose of the contract has been uh, complied with. Uh, The damages are gonna be limited to whatever the contract price is Plus whatever it costs to fix whatever the problem may be. Um, when you see a, a reference to R A J I Raji Civil with Contract Ten, that's that's a reference to the jury instructions. You can find jury the, the Arizona Uniform Jury Instructions on the the State Bar's webpage. Um, sometimes it's kind of hard to get to them, and you're you're almost better off uh, googling or whatever search engine you like to use Arizona civil jury instruction and, and then they'll, they'll pop up immediately but if you ever need to know what the law is on something whether it's a contract or um, even criminal stuff a, a good place to look is are the jury instructions and they at the top of the jury instructional it'll have what the judge is what's recommended for the judge to read to the attorneys um, or to the to the jury under that, there'll be footnotes about the the source of the jury instruction would and it, it'll give you cites to cases and, and statutes and things like that. So, looking at jury instructions can actually be a, a fairly helpful research tool, which is it's not necessarily something you would you would normally think of. Um, so, in in a per, substantial performance example, um, you, you look at the substance over form and you look at whether there's some kind of minor harm or material harm. Um, for example, if you have a, a new outdoor patio grill area that's un- installed, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a landscape plus uh, sort of construction contract to come in and do a new patio with an outdoor building uh, grill and stuff like that. And the contract says it's going to be a Weber uh, propane grill, but they actually give you some other brand um if the two grills are essentially identical the contractor will likely substantially perform the contract and you may not be able to get uh a relief by you know taking a sledgehammer to the bricks that are that are there now and and, and putting a, a new grill in or, or however it was installed um if it's something that's significantly different then you are entitled to the difference between what it would cost to, to either fix the problem or the value of the, the two grills. It, it's just gonna be however you, you approach that. Have people heard cases where there's been either a painting uh, case with the wrong color paint, with slightly the wrong color paint or some type of construction or add on or um, whatever, whether it's a landscaping contractor or whatever, Have you had cases where one side was, was demanding strict performance and the other side is saying, well, I basically got almost everything right. Have, have any of you had those types of cases? If not, I think you will, but everyone, oh yes, please.
3: I just had actually a case, I just finished mediating. It was exactly that point with a closet company that made a contract back in May for three different closets. Two of them were fully installed. And the third one, which is the most of the, the, the cost, uh, the lady was not happy, the quality. So actually they had to do some change. In the end, back in December, they decided that, okay, we're gonna, that we won't install, we take it down. That master closet, and you should have to own the 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 cost left because you 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 know you broke the contract. We made all the efforts to 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 help you. So they come to a lawsuit in which you initially a seven thousand dollars remaining debt and I mean a payment that needs to be done, and the, the defendant was claiming that the job was not well done and back in december they told them, okay we will release you from that cost and we will give you a, a twelve hundred dollars as a uh some you know some sort of uh, you know just to walk away but she eventually they never pay her and when she contacted said actually you we're not going to pay you you owe us the seven thousand dollars so they're here now in mediation today and actually the the company was she was very, you know, think that her contract is going to, you know, she, they're going to go to trial because they didn't want to settle. But the, the, I, my conversation individually with her was trying to realize, you know, that they made, they looked like they made a lot of effort to to comply with the contract. And in the end, she was the one who said, you know what, I'm done with this. And I just, from my curiosity, I don't know whether it's what, you know, the likelihood of which, which person there will have a greater weight, you know, with with the the legal aspect. Uh, the the contract actually in the end put a good bad good faith effort. He actually said, you know what, I we I dismissed the case, but the lady said, oh, I should want my twelve hundred dollars, and she would not back away from that, and uh, so that was a little uh, bizarre, but uh, she really did not want it. You know, he he was basically dismissing the lawsuit, and so. Anyway, but that was one of those cases that they, if if the contractor, I mean, if they make a good effort on on the contract, you know, the mitigating whatever issues they had, I wonder if that's would be a contract that would be, you know, be able to hold in court as they did to try their best to 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 meet her needs, but she felt that were not good enough.
1: Yeah. It- it's going to depend on the specifications. Uh, it, all, all these cases, unfortunately, are going to be very, very fact specific. But, but you have all the concepts right. There's, uh, in my opinion, of uh, uh, when you, you talk about instruction, of closet. Uh, for some reason, I thought of a of a mediocre movie with uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn called Overboard, uh, and he was contracted to make closets in her yacht and she didn't specify that they were cedar um, and he put in oak closets and she's like, well, the whole world knows that closets are supposed to be made out of cedar. And he said, well, I don't. And he, he didn't specify that in the contract um, to get cedar. I'm going to have to rip everything out. And she refused, not only refused to pay him, but threw his tools overboard and hence, hence the name of the, the movie. But um, everything is, is, but in, in that case, um, I would have found, I guess, for Kurt Russell's character, because she didn't specify that the closets were supposed to be cedar, and he he, he installed um, in accordance with um, the guidance that he was given. Uh, Goldie Hawn's character at, at that point in the movie um, was kind of a, a diva person who didn't work and play well with others, but... In any event, um, the you, you analyze the case correctly. Uh, is is this per? You, you said, did he make a good faith effort? You know, did he did the contractor substantially comply with the contract? And if, if yes, then um, then the damages are going, aren't going to be very minimal. Um, when you talk about contract damages, the there's there's two real categories: general or direct damages. Um, those are damages that are obvious from the breach of the contract. And with those types of damages, the goal is to put the person in the position they would have been had the contract been performed. Um, on top of that are consequential damages. Um, there, the breaching party may be also liable for damages if they're foreseeable. Um, the, so say you're, it's an auto repair case um and the person uh comes in with a a company truck or a or a food truck or or something like that and the mechanic um doesn't repair the the truck to the extent that they're supposed to the customer doesn't know this the customer drives off um and the car breaks the, the truck breaks down well if the the truck breaks down you know they have to have it towed back to the shop and fixed those are direct damages those are easy to figure out but what about if the the customer had a, a festival that weekend and they were depending upon using that truck to deliver items to that festival or if it's a food truck maybe they're going to sell food prepare and sell food at that, that festival so the consequential damages would be not only did they were they not able not only did the truck break and the truck has to be fixed again, but they they had lost profits um, that they they didn't get from the sale of the food and a lot of the food spoiled because it was it has to be used with a certain within a certain amount of time. It was raw chicken or or, or whatever. Um, so it's spoiled. you know you can maybe use the hamburger buns later but you can't use you know the the raw chicken that's been sitting out in the sun so those the the raw chicken and the, and the lost profits would be consequential damages they're they're damages that are on top of the direct damages again if they're foreseeable and if you're just fixing uh, a car and you're a mechanic you don't know what the car is going to be used for. But if the person comes in and says, Hey, I, I need you to rush this one. Because we have, you know, a, a live music festival over the weekend, and I'm going to be the only, you know, vendor selling tacos, you know, at, at this at this thing, then then the it is foreseeable if the car breaks down on the way to the, the truck breaks down on the way to the festival. Does that does that make sense does everyone get the difference between uh direct damages and consequential damages? Does anyone have any good stories on people wanting maybe unique or even outlandish consequential damages from the from a case they've heard? Okay. Um, I had this little thing called tips for mediators. The mediators already know this, but it's some people have an unrealistic unre- view of damages. Um, so when, when speaking with the plaintiffs, point out that, hey, nothing's guaranteed. Um, difficult damages are really difficult to prove sometime. Um, when speaking with defendants, point out that, hey, you know, they're, they're suing you for a lot of money. Um, trials are very uncertain. Um, and it's better to have a, a, a number that you can live with that you don't like, as opposed to having to re- record, return all the way back to court for trial, taking another day off work, and and, and coming up with with something where it kind of kicks you in the teeth. Um, how much? I, I'm not exactly sure how much flexibility you have as mediators. that will it will vary depending upon the circumstances in a virtual format it's hard hopefully you have the ability to where you can talk to both sides together and then talk to both sides separately um if you have that capacity then you can be brutally honest um when you're talking with people individually i mean you can say things like you know really your entire case depends on a witness who's your best friend you think the judge is really going to to buy everything that your best friend says, you know, or, you know, if there's a, a, the the case depends on a a third party who doesn't have any interest in the case, like maybe a mechanic or a a witness that's that's not connected to the the people, you know, you can say, hey, you really think your witness wants to come to court? You really think if you subpoena your mechanic, you really think he's going to show up? You know, well, yeah, you could take action against them for not showing up. But if you really think your mechanic's going to show up and testify, you know, about you know his or her work on the engine, you know, and then what do you do if your mechanic doesn't show up? Then you don't have a case. You don't have a way to prove your case. So if you're if you're suing, you know, the car dealer because they they messed up your car when you took it in for service. And the only way you can prove that is to call uh, a second mechanic. The second mechanic doesn't show up and you've got a, a big proof problem. And there aren't a lot of mechanics that like to spend their morning waiting to testify against an, another mechanic. You know, the same with air conditioner repair people, or you know, right now, good luck getting any air conditioner or repair person to do anything. Other than repair air conditioning, but I think as as mediators you can be brutally honest with that. At the small claims hearing, officers that's a completely different role. Um, you shouldn't be attacking the other side's witnesses um, as before you hear the case. That that won't go over well because you're you're also the fact finder. But as as mediators you have a, a lot more flexibility. Do um, any of the mediators have have stories on how that that type of approach has worked that has not worked that they'd like to share. Deborah, your mic? Yes.
3: I was just going to say, actually, for this particular, usually what I do virtually when I want to caucus, I just have one party disconnect from the call and call back. So actually, for this party, I actually I, you know, cause first of all, I thought it was a good deal. The guy was just missing the case. You should have just take it and walk away. And it was kind of hard to see her getting attached to that $1,000, you know, whatever she wanted. And I actually talked this with her separately. And I kind of, I, I, I very, you know, exactly what I, what I what I said, but, you know, on uh, a sense like, you know, are you, are you willing to take the risk? I don't know what's going to happen that uh, if you lose, you might have to give money to him, which right now he's telling you, you can walk away without paying him and, and, you know not always work, but this time definitely did not work. Uh, and I was, you know, was disappointed, but, but in any event, uh, I, I do feel that those moments, the caucusing problem, which I know hearing officers don't have that option, but uh, it is definitely valuable. And uh, I've seen them work before when we have that opportunity to spell it out.
1: There's a, a discussion problem on the the, Sort of halfway down page um, or right before. Oh, it's at the top. There we go. Um, the the uh, just pretend you're the. This is a in your capacity as a as a judge or small claims hearing officer, as opposed to a, a a mediator. Although if you're a mediator, you can share how you would approach this as a mediation point as well. But the plaintiff and the defendant entered into a verbal landscaping contract that was based upon a set of proposed plans. At the hearing, the plaintiff established that the defendant had used the wrong color of rock, had used plants that were significantly smaller than what had been promised. When asked the basis for the $2,500 claim, she testified that she talked to her neighbor and it was his estimate that it would cost at least that much to make everything the way she wanted it to be. No other evidence was offered concerning damages. If, if that's what you've got, how do you analyze that case and how do you How do you rule? Some of these things have your name, so I could actually call on people if I wanted to be a a jerk. Um, Some of them, it has the name of a company or something instead, so it's a little trickier. Uh, But does anyone wanna volunteer? How they, if this is is the evidence that's before you, how would would you begin to fill out the
0: judgment form?
4: Judge Williams? Yes. This is Renee Jordan here. I'm a hearing officer. Okay. Um, on this case, if this is the only evidence, because I would ask, do you have a copy of that proposed plan? Does that proposed plan include pictures? Was the color of the rock defined? Was the size and the quality and the type of plants Um, listed in that proposed plan. If the proposed plan was so vague and there were no real specific details and the only evidence that the plaintiff had was her neighbor, and unless that neighbor was there and witnessed the whole thing, and perhaps he's a landscaper, um, unfortunately, I would ruin favor of the defendant.
1: Okay. Let me let me cheat a little bit and change the facts on you say that the plaintiff establishes that uh, has the plan the plans are very detailed the plans uh list the plant by plant type list the both the size and the color of the rock and where it's supposed to go um has everything laid out and the defendant landscaper's position is Yeah, we made some mistakes, but we'd like to try to fix them. Then what's your, what's your, how do you? Well,
4: unfortunately, as a hearing officer, we can't grant any injunctive relief. The only thing we could do is rule in favor of the defendant or dismiss the case without prejudice, allowing that person to resolve this issue and that's where it gets very uncomfortable as a hearing officer because your hands are tied as to what you can do. Um, I guess I would ask, did you, uh, to the defendant, did you offer this before to the plaintiff? What was the plaintiff's response? Um, Of course, the only thing is, I wanna make this exception here, before you start the hearings, you're supposed to, and I don't always do, ask, did you guys wanna step outside for a moment and try to resolve this before you come and have a hearing and then you don't have that option available to you? Now, if that's the case, if that question was asked, then that proposal should have been presented. So I hate to keep <laughs> throwing all these little... No, no, no. no, edges there.
1: Your your, your your analysis is correct. The, the, um, the, the point of, of, this, of this question was to show that a plaintiff can sue, the, a plaintiff improves 75% of their case and still lose um, if, if they don't also prove damages. Um, this was this this is based on a case I had, um, and I I knew that I was going to rule against the plaintiff, um, but I wanted to soften the blow a little bit and explain why. So I I, I took the case under advisement wrote up an explanation as to why i was ruling against the, the plaintiff and, and ruled for the defendant um typically um, in these cases whether it's a, a roof repair or, or 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 landscaping or whatever um, once the homeowner no longer trusts the contractor the homeowner doesn't want the contractor back on their property that's, that's the fact pattern I see over and over again. So sometimes the, the contractor doesn't have an opportunity to fix um, defective workmanship because the, the homeowner won't let them let them back on. But I, I ruled in favor of the uh, defendant in this case, even though the plaintiff established that there was a contract and that there was a breach of the contract, she did not accept that. She did not present any evidence of damages other than just randomly talking to her next door neighbor about it. What she needed was an estimate from a new contractor showing how much money it would be to fix everything. Had she done that, um, then the case would have had a very very different outcome.
4: But let's say that she did have. Um An estimate from a new contractor did that proposed set of plans though specify that color of rock did it specify the size and the type of the plant because if that proposed plan was very vague another contractor could have a whole different mindset
1: that's true um in the case i had the 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 proposed plan was very detailed it was yeah professionally drawn um, uh, she thought she was getting this lush trap tropical garden in her backyard she actually got plants that were could fairly be described as house plants um <laughs> that were planted yeah. in, in her backyard so it, it uh it, it I I felt very very sorry for her but I I couldn't do anything um and, and this is a case where we had we had a we had a pre-trial conference. Um, I explained to everyone, you know, that you have to prove damages, and for whatever reason, that didn't um, sink in, or maybe I didn't do a very good job explaining it at the pretrial conference. But uh, by the time of the trial, you know, th- there there wasn't anything else there,
4: so. Well, I find that oftentimes if they understand me. It's been explained to them thoroughly, but they come in with filters, and those filters block out anything that was said, or little bits and pieces of what was said that they wanted to hear is what they're going to remember, and that's sad. And I do try, and I always tell them at the end of the, or the beginning of the hearing. I'm going to say for the record, I'm going to tell you my decision, but I'm going to explain to you why I made my decision. You may not agree with it or like it, but at least you'll know how I came to it. So, And that's, you know, the best I can do. And sometimes you feel really bad that you have to make those decisions, but oh, yeah. that's what you're there for. Okay, um, well, I'm going to go back on mute and shut up. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> no problem. Thanks for participating. And I'm going to ask Charles a question now. I don't know if you wanted to take a a break, um, or if you wanted me to
0: just continue to plow through. Um, do you, I, I leave it up to you. Do you want to take just a five-minute break?
1: Right, let's, ta- let's take just a five-minute break for everyone, so they can go get something to drink or or whatever, and we'll 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 start yeah. back up again.
0: We'll go ahead and do that.
1: Thanks.